Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And we are a real dialogue podcast. And what that means is we have real, unedited conversations with the legendary people who are making a difference in our world, particularly in business, marketing, and life. And this is our first in a special two-part series on digital business. Um, Our next episode features my buddy, longtime friend, Steve Pratt, and he's the CEO of a very exciting startup called Noodle.ai, and um, they are changing global supply chains in a pretty remarkable way. So that's our next episode. On this episode, one of my dearest and closest friends, Big Ben Ruiz, and we have a very real conversation about digital businesses. Um, Today, when Big Ben's not out surfing or on some kind of adventure, he's dishing digital business strategy advice to Fortune 100 companies and startups in Silicon Valley. And I've known Big Ben and done business with him and been serving with him and been on mountains with him for uh, about 15 years now. He's an extraordinary human being. As a matter of fact, he created the internet e-commerce team for Visa. Yeah, that Visa. And He was the head of security and fraud technology at First Data. Big Ben has deep experience building and managing massively scalable digital businesses and payments infrastructure where everything's on the line. Um, He's also an advisor to uh, a startup called Verdant Robotics. And they're doing some very exciting things using machine learning, um, artificial intelligence in the agriculture category. Big Ben is also one of the most extraordinary adventure athletes I've ever met. He's a skier, snowboarder, sailor, surfer, and he's an extraordinary guy to have on a mountain. As a matter of fact, Big Ben was one of the first snowboarders ever sponsored by Jake Burton. Yeah, that Jake Burton, the founder of Burton Snowboards. And Big Ben competed in the first ever snowboarding world championships. Most recently, Big Ben was in London, and he received an extraordinary distinction. He was named a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society, an award he shares with folks like Charles Darwin and Sir Edmund Hillary. Uh, He won this award for his incredible work building a new type of app for Save the Waves to uh, mobilize surfers to help save endangered parts of our ocean. I have no doubt you're going to love this episode and love Big Ben as much as I do. Check out Lockhead.com for the show notes and key takeaways for this episode. Now, as you know, one of the top reasons businesses fail is an inability to scale. That's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. NetSuite is the number one cloud business system for growing businesses for a reason. NetSuite allows you to scale from the garage to the IPO and beyond. NetSuite offers you a full picture of your finances and key business operations all in one place in real time from your phone or your desktop. That's why NetSuite customers can scale and grow so fast. As a matter of fact, they grow three times faster than the typical S&P 500 company, and you can too. To learn how, check out netsuite.com different today. And there you'll be able to set up a free demo and get your free guide, The Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. That's netsuite.com different. And if you read uh, my most recent article written um, for the Harvard Business Review, with Eddie Yoon, who I believe is the number one category guru to the Fortune 500. Um, You know about the power of building a data flywheel when trying to uh, design and dominate a new market category. 
I think we're at a point in time where data has become more valuable than cash. And um, that's where my friends at Splunk come in. Splunk is the leader in a category called data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action, regardless of uh, where that data originated and where it's stored in real time. Check out splunk.com slash D2E. That's Splunk, S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D2E, as in data to everything, and learn how to turn data into doing. Now, also, I want to tell you about a stunning two-part series that we have coming up soon here on the podcast with none other than the real DEA narcos, Javier Pena and Steve Murphy. That's right. These two extraordinary American heroes are the two men who worked with Colombian law enforcement to take down the world's first narco-terrorist, Pablo Escobar. And their story is stunning. And if you've seen Netflix smash hit Narcos, that's them. Only, even if you've watched every episode of Narcos, you don't know the real story. On the first episode uh, with Javier and Murph, we get into it. And then on the second episode, we dig into their lives and their leadership lessons. These are two extraordinary American heroes. You will be knocked out by Murph and Javier, I promise. I got to spend a bunch of time with them. They flew out to California to spend uh, a day with me, and it was absolute magic. So if you're not already subscribed, don't forget to hit subscribe so that you won't miss um, our next episode coming up with Steve Pratt and the real DEA Narcos coming up soon. Now, hey-ho, let's go. There's a lot to a digital business, right? I, you know, if you think about different kinds of businesses that are doing digital things, whether it's a, a digital startup, you know, that was born digital, whether it's a Fortune 1000 or bigger even that is doing a transformation of their IT division to some new digital initiative or a big company that's just starting up a whole new activity that is a digital business from the beginning. Um I think there's a lot of themes. There's a lot of organizational and technical similarity across all of them. And, uh, you know, the whole notion of data in the digital business is, it's just fascinating what's happening in, in, uh, in industry today. Cause it, you know, like that, uh, Anderson quote, you know, software is eating the world. Well, what's that producing? It's producing data Yeah, in, uh, in all these places. Yeah. And recent. Yeah. Yeah. And so what do you think is the difference between a digital business and a traditional business? I think it's somebody who is from the get-go having products or services that are digitized in some form or fashion and monetized in some form or fashion, right? You know, it could be um, commerce. There's no limit on the B2B, B2C, C2B, any of that kind of a business model. It's really just what's the content of what they do. F to you, whatever yeah, it is. <laughs> to you. It, uh, it's really just are they creating something that is, uh, you know, producing data that is um, somehow monetized, right? So, um, you know, the interesting thing to me is now these digital businesses don't necessarily have um, – new value added services that are data based they may have a legacy product or service that is digital 
and they're realizing that the data that is produced by that service can help them generate new revenues or cut costs. Yeah. And that's a, that's an interesting paradigm that I think has grown a lot more in say the last 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that digital businesses are brand new. They've been around a long time. Right. right. It's that um, people are realizing the, the byproduct of their digital business can in fact be more businesses. More right. data, more business. The data throws off a new business opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. might throw off a new business model or all kinds of things. Exactly, exactly. The other interesting part of this to me is you sort of say, okay, well, if if uh, everything is digital or everything is being digitized, you know, if you think about the Internet of Things, right? Yep. I couldn't have imagined the first time I heard that term that, you know, our entire house was going to become IOT, right? Yeah. And everything was going to be smartified and so forth. And so now I play this game in my mind I've been dying to ask you about. Yeah. Okay, so name something that isn't going to be digitized, that isn't going to have a sensor or a camera or some data collection and therefore monetization capability. And I can't come up with a lot of things. Yeah, it's probably leaving the domain of physical and entering um, other domains. Right. You know, like... uh, spirituality or love right or your sense of god right those things won't be let's go right there let's talk about the digitization and the meaning of god (laughs) it's not gonna happen i don't think anytime soon well we we may need some libations if we're gonna go to that (laughs) and you know certain certain senses like um you know i think things like smell for example harder to digitize right like it's not impossible you know, but if you th- if you think about, uh, uh, are we talking about digital smell now? <laughs> well, my point is, like, you know, Amazon is doing like two hour um, grocery delivery to your house now, as an example, right. right? So you've digitized your shopping list. It's connected to your smart fridge. They're like just instantly bringing you stuff, but you're not able to like smell the tangerines on the screen. Yet, right? yet, my right. point is. It, there are lots of things that are coming, right? But the, the, they're just, they're not there yet. And so eventually most things I think can be digitized to your point. Hey, you know, I think about simple things like, okay, well, are the plants in the garden going to be digitized? Well, the data about the plants in the garden. Right. I mean, that's, um, you know, I'm working with, uh, with a robotics company that is designing agricultural um, technologies, it's hardware and software that combine computer vision and artificial intelligence and automated robotics to basically understand every part of a plant at massive scale. So if you're a farmer and you have trees and your trees produce fruit, you want to know at what stage uh, you need to perform actions. And uh, historically, you know, they got to walk the field, they got to do everything. But what if robots are continuously um, you know, droning the field, looking and filming the history of of the plant to know uh, and inform, like, um, think like Google Street View, right? Like mm-hmm. you're now instead of typing in an address, you're able to look at an actual tree and you can see the tree's history 
So you may have 100,000 acres of these trees. You may be able right. to zoom in on one tree and then see its growth history over time and see all the actions that have been applied to the tree to be able to understand exactly the right time to grow the most desired fruit and how to do that off that one tree. Now, this is happening at an industrial scale uh, in the ag tech industry across multiple uh, uh, crops. Will it ever get into the garden in your backyard? Probably, right? I mean, if if what happens is is large-scale industrialization making it so it could be commoditized to give you the benefit, just like you have a you know, a nest cam to watch uh, the chickens. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you have nest cam to, to watch the status of the fruit, and then you kind of know what has to happen that way. And if that benefits you as a person and you want to do it, why not? Well, and I'll give you a concrete example. Um, so as you well know, my father-in-law runs the last working orchard in San Jose. And um, one of the things he's always asking us about uh, during the winter time is to look up online um, how many chill hours there are this year so far in San Jose because it turns out and I forget what the temperature is but there's some temperature that if it hits that temperature and below that's the chill hour magic line yeah and what a chill hour is about is if it's the amount of hours a tree is in hibernation yeah and the net of it, this is all shit I just, you know, I've learned over the last, you know, several years as he's been my father-in-law. But the more chill hours, the more the tree hibernates, the more the tree hibernates, the more it fruits. So, for example, last year was a cold winter in Northern California, and he went, had one of the best years of his of his life. And so this year, we're monitoring chill hours for Papa, and we already know, uh, based on publicly available data from um, uh, UC Davis, that were, I forget what the percentage is, but uh, something like 20% higher in terms of number of chill hours in San Jose this year, because it's been a colder winter. And so as a result of just that one piece of data, yeah. we're already beginning to talk to Papa about, okay, so let's do things now yep. so that we're in front of it because last year he didn't feel prepared enough given the bounty. And so the aha for me about what you're talking about is that's just with one piece of data. That's right. If he had a sensor on every tree and understood the difference between, you know, peaches and, 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 and plums and parsimons and apples and all That's the right. various things he had right. and mm -hmm. was checking soil samples and water ratios and temperature. And I don't even know what all the components, that's what you're talking about. Is that's it right. a set of sensors that monitor everything right at the, in this case, the tree or the plant level? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's even more than that. It's really at the square centimeter level. Right, So you're moving from managing a plot of land to a particular plant to actually like the square centimeter of that plant. Wow. And you're, you're doing that in real time with big data storing in the cloud the entire life cycle history at a square centimeter level with XYZ coordinates of every... That's incredible. Right? So that kind of data is, uh, is really powerful. And, you know, I think it's important to help help the planet at this point in time. You know, I've heard stats like um, in the entire history of food production. Um, oh, how's it go? It's actually in the next 40 years, we will have to produce more food than has been produced in the entire history of food production. Because Say that again there, in handsome. In the next 40 years, yeah. we will have to produce more food 
than we have produced in the history of producing food. Wow. Because of the population, because of the planet. And when you think about tech and data, it really, in my mind, helps address that challenge, right? The dilemma of greenhouse gases and climate change and all that gets adjusted radically when you do something like, for example, vertical farming. Now, there's there's a startup in San Francisco that um, does green leaf crops vertically in a warehouse. And you take something like spinach and you ask, well, what does an aggressive spinach farmer produce in a normal year? And they might say 13 or 14 uh, crop rotations in the calendar year. Mm-hmm. These guys, because they force, you know, with solar and electrical and their own generators and a 24 seven controlled environment where they do water on the top at like 40 feet and they let it trickle with gravity and they grow. These guys are producing 400 lettuce crops Wow! in the cycle of 13 or 14, right? So all of a sudden you get exponential output for certain crops and, you know, things like the, uh, you know, synthetic meats and all that sort of stuff. I feel yeah. like the world is actually not going to go hungry, uh, because things like data and tech are going to help address that. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. We had Heidi Rosen on the podcast, and she's um, one of the primary investors in um, shit. It's one of the, uh, is it Memphis Meats? Yeah. It's it's one of the big synthetic grown, there's different terms for the category. It'll be interesting to see what it, but, and, and at first blush, of course, you look at it and you go, you're going to eat meat that's grown in a lab. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, as radical as that sounds, uh, if you believe what Mike Maples says, and I, I love the way he, he thinks about it, which is legendary entrepreneurs are visitors from the future telling us how it's going to be, right? Yeah. yeah. And so as crazy as it sounds, there's a chance 20 years from now, we'll look at eating meat from an animal as, you know, the way we would look at bloodletting as right. a medical procedure. Right. Well, if, uh, you know, if China and India decide that they want to eat a lot of meat, that's going to be really important because they don't. Maybe it'd be better if India stays vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean that in terms of impact for sustainability and the climate, right? I mean, we need, we need alternative models and, you know, cattle isn't going to cut it. Right. Right. So um, I'm actually optimistic that to, to jump from, um, agriculture over to sustainability that data I think can really help the sustainability issue for the for the planet too I think there's a lot of good things happening there um, you know where uh, for example one of the uh, things I'm helping is a local organization called save the waves it's a coalition and we we built a mobile app <coughs> for phones uh, that for beachgoers and surfers where they go around and they take pictures of issues that can harm Uh, the surf zone ecosystem, right? It could be coastal development, water quality, coastal erosion, marine debris, you know, uh, plastic, direct sewage, whatever. Um, So these surfers take pictures, capture that threat data, and then we take that data and we're connecting it with a big blockchain-based algorithm that we're building um, in order to facilitate donations and fundraising. So you take an event, you create some activism around it, you get some fundraising and that creates surf conservation and activism for sustainability by by mobilizing people with a shared value base of protecting the planet. Right. And that these are surfers who are sitting in the lineup who don't want the sewage. Right. So they, they take action and that action gets facilitated into 
data that is used for sustainability and creating surf conservation. So I think there are going to be a lot more um, activities like that as you know, there's more mobile devices than people, as there's more concern for people taking action and not being um, angry and depressed about climate change or, and that like the, the farmer is doing it for agriculture. Now the consumer and the human needs to do it to, to take accountability for their own, you know, use of resources on the planet. And to, to, if people become mobilized that way, I think it's a very powerful thing. Well, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's, you know, if you look at, if you go back to maybe the Arab spring, there was this notion then, I don't know if that's the first time the term appeared, but it certainly began to be popularized of citizen journalism, right? And there's a lot yeah. of talk about the negativity of yeah. mobile phones and social media and all that, but there's a lot of positive, right? And, yeah. and, you know, when you have situations going on and, you know, pick your country and the government of that country is corrupt or evil or doing whatever, and they're saying X and citizens are holding their smartphones and, 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 essentially broadcasting live on Facebook or whatever, yeah. the exact opposite of what's going on. That's right. All of a sudden there really is Accountability. a- Right. Yeah. And I, I, this may sound like a non sequitur and maybe it is, but I, I've been reading of late about the fact that 90% of the kelp beds on the West coast of the United States are being destroyed by these purple sea urchins. Yes. And it's not so bad here in Santa yeah, Cruz, but, in Santa Cruz. but outside of Santa Cruz, the kelp beds are being destroyed, right? Yeah. That's the kind of thing that citizen, I don't know what to call it, citizen eco, digital eco champion. I don't know what to call them, but right. people who are near those waters can, can, can do things to monitor the situation and provide data as, a, as an insight as to how to deal with these purple sea urchins and how to begin to restore... Um, the kelp beds. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. And, you know, so these to me are just examples of digital businesses, whether it's agricultural or environmentalism or sustainability or ocean protection, they're all um, benefiting um, by entrepreneurs who want to create digital businesses. And, you know, I, I think the, uh, the important thing for those folks is I've, I've done this, I don't know, about a dozen times over the last couple decades um, is to to try and as you're thinking about what those businesses are, uh, think about your principles up front and clarify your digital business intentions to help you avoid the unintended consequences of either failure and waste in um, you know project dollars that didn't execute or um, accountability in the teams and and people that you're working with. Right? If you if you think about that stuff and you get your principles down up front, you're going to have a higher probability of success and you'll probably have more fun because you'll have less, uh, less confusion and less conflict. <laughs> and so um, how do I, uh, you tell me if this is even the way you think about it, but uh, what's in my head is um, how do I build a data first or digital first business from the ground up, whether I'm a startup or I'm a fortune 500 launching some new product service initiative, new category, what have you, how do I think digital as sort of the core of a business model? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, I've thought about it and I think there are um, sort of tenants, just like if you were to think about a, a philosophy, you know, Buddhism or, uh, yoga, right? There's there's set tenets that help you 
um, frame your thinking mm. and um, think about those tenants for how you want the business to work. Right. And there, there are best practices around that stuff. Like, um, you know, design with the users, right. As a, as a first part, right. Don't, um, don't just sit in a vacuum, bring the customer and the user into the design, you know, get, get users to help you refine uh, what it is and quickly establish like a customer advisory board, right? So that any product development plans you have for the, the service of the company, you have your best customers on that cab giving you counsel. Maybe it's a, every few months you talk about your release train. Maybe it's once a year they're looking at your strategic plan. But the point is you're not doing it alone. Um, I, I hate to interrupt you, but... <laughs> I don't know if you find this, maybe it's just my uh, uh, my grump getting bigger, but I, I often find myself using some product or service and saying, did the fucking people who built this thing ever try to use it? <laughs> you know, my favorite example, of course, is the automated uh, sink and automated soap dispenser yeah. in the airport, right? <laughs> I wear a lot of black. Yes. And if you're wearing a black t-shirt and you get in front of an automated fucking soap dispenser, it won't give you soap. <laughs> And, and I have this terrible thing in my head that said, you know, the creator of this fucking technology, their punishment should be they should be locked in a cell with nothing but an automated sink for the rest of their lives and a black T-shirt. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's, uh, that's So user centric design, huh? <laughs> user centric design and then understanding the ecosystem for what you're building. Right. If the thing is an ecosystem of people in only black shirts, make sure you understand that. <laughs> Well, an ecosystem's interesting. We, you know, we talked about it in Play Bigger. And one of the ahas, as you start to unpack what a category um, dominating and designing company really looks like is they do create an ecosystem. That's right. And they are, if you will, the center of that. They're the sun and the other players, be they suppliers, be they retailers, distribution, customers, collaborator, whatever it is, are sort of planets and moons. But they, they find a way yeah. to center, make themselves, you know, think That's about right. Microsoft or That's Facebook right. or uh, whoever it is. They, they themselves are the center of something. And then there's all this other stuff around it. And so how do I think about creating an ecosystem that is, if you will, digital first? So for me, that's. It's fundamentally just drawing a picture of how you see the digital service fit in it. So you have a problem statement, right? And you're you're trying to figure out how to solve for that problem. And imagine like a biosphere, you know, something in uh, in the world that you live in that there there are going to be participants. There's going to be relationships. Your digital business can somehow be documented and defined in relationship to um, that existing ecosystem, whether it's a a new category or product, or you're improving something that's existing, or you know you're you're refining a model. If you can't kind of do a simple one-page drawing of that, um, that's probably where you need to start. Mm -hmm. right? So literally draw the ecosystem. Yeah, literally draw the players. Yeah, you know, um, it, it doesn't matter. Like, um, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, I worked in payments for a long time. I, I was with. Uh, with Visa and, um, you know, you'd talk about the consumer, the merchant, the acquirer, the network, the issuer. Those are like five major players mm -hmm. in the payments ecosystem. And somehow all the products and the services need to coexist, right? Because it's a multi-party 
ecosystem, yes. you have to have a value prop that you articulate across multiple players. Right. And when you start to invent new products or services, you can't be disintermediating somebody. You have to be adding value to all those players, right? And a lot... Well, and the thing that I love about what you're saying is I think a mistake that's happened in the tech industry is we use this word disrupt or disruption too much, right? Yes. When you show up, if I if I show up in the payments world and say, I'm going to disrupt the payments world. Right. Well, everybody in the payments world is going to make sure that I get destroyed. Whereas if you show up and say, uh, and you tell me the right words, but we're creating a new digital ecosystem where we're empowering a digital eco, whatever it is. Exactly. And you're, you're saying, I want to collaborate with the industry right. and, and create this new capability. That's a very different mindset. That's right. And, you know, understanding, you know, like uh, one of the things I did was help um, improve the availability of VisaNet, which is the most available payment system in the world. And we figured out the way to do that would be to consolidate monitoring across all these different things and get a single view of the service from the customer's perspective. But in doing that, we realized we could integrate fraud data and create new products and services that not only lower the downtime for a bank or a merchant that might have um, you know, a circuit cut or something like that, so transactions are, are um, more readily flowing, but we could also create a lower cost of fraud by integrating the fraud data from across the different players. Cause you know, a merchant had a fraud system and an issuer had a fraud system and the network had a fraud system. We could tile that together so that we're simultaneously saving hundreds of millions of dollars on system outages every month, but also generating new revenues associated by selling fraud services that are the result of consolidating the data across those ecosystem players. Right? You couldn't do that if you hadn't understood the ecosystem and what their role was and what the data was that they needed to make money off of. Right. Right. So, and that's an interesting yeah. example. You know, I've come to this place where, uh, and I know it's a controversial position and and maybe an intentionally provocative one, but I, I think it's one it's one worth bathing in, which is data is more valuable than cash because data is actually more monetizable uh, and data can grow in value in an exponential way uh, in a way that cash historically does not. And so what I hear you saying is uh, on fraud data, number one, you needed to, you needed to have a breakthrough in the way you dealt with fraud data yep. to protect the business. Yep. But by thinking in a, how do we monetize the data kind of paradigm, you said, hmm, how do we not only protect our data, but then how do we monetize the fact that we're protecting our data? Yes, absolutely. And But that's a big idea. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the the phrase data, data as a flywheel. Um, think about like those old sewing machines, right? Where you, uh, on your foot was this pedal and you press the pedal mm -hmm. and on the side near your foot, there was a, a big wheel. Yeah. The pedal moved the wheel. That's the flywheel. Mm -hmm. And that big wheel then connected with a cable up to the actual sewing machine where there was a small wheel. Mm -hmm. Right. So you could pump the wheel with your foot like 10 times and the big wheel would keep going. And then you could sew for a few minutes without pumping. Right. So now instead of the sewing machine and that big wheel, data is the flywheel. Yeah. Right. And instead of the little wheel and the sewing machine, that's the service that any company has, right? It's a product or a service that exists or it's a net new thing they want to build. But the point is the data is not that thing. The data is the flywheel that you then create the new thing with. Yes. Right. And 
if you think about innovation and you think about how to create new service revenues, whatever your business is, especially if it's somehow transactional in nature, mm -hmm. you're going to have the opportunity to generate new revenues. Because every time there's a transaction, there's data. Exactly. Right. So metadata or the data about the data can then be quantified and turned into ancillary products and services. Like after I left Visa, I went to JP Morgan Chase and uh, for a couple of years, I helped them build a copy of VisaNet called ChaseNet. So we took the Chase issuing systems and payment tax merchant acquiring assets and then a copy of VisaNet specific to Chase. What that did was create a new method of payment and a new transaction flow for any Chase merchant that was using that service. So now you look at that and that's that's an authorization stream for every kind of Chase card of which there's a millions of them out there. And then we said, hey, what if we align loyalty and rewards at the point of sale using like new TM, ATM technologies and we can create mobile offers and um, in, in, in an absolute real time based on user behavior. So I'm yeah. doing X yeah. and you deliver an offer that is yeah. tailored to me yeah. around the X that I'm in the middle of the thing that I'm doing. Right. So that system of payment was the big wheel in the sewing machine. It generated the data, which was cr now created in a lower cost, higher scale transaction processing environment for those Chase customers. Mm -hmm. But then we took that data and we figured out how to align loyalty and rewards at the point of sale in order to improve the customer experience even more. And potentially drive more revenue, right? Oh, exactly. So you can cross market and cross sell and do lots of um, new value added service creation as a result of understanding that here's my ecosystem. Here are these players. Here's this transaction flow. Now let's talk about creating new products and services that add value to different players, like the consumer in the hardware store who may take money out of an ATM and get a receipt on the ATM that they could use at the point of sale for a discount because the transactional data of the consumer taking money out of the ATM could be correlated to the merchant's value prop. Those kinds of multi-player um, value-added services where data is the flywheel to generate are based on your understanding of the existing ecosystem and then your ability to generate new value-added services stemming from that knowledge. Mm. I love that. The more you understand that, the more innovative and creative you can be. And so if I'm wanting to bring a new product or service to the world, what I think I hear you saying is as I'm in the process of creating that product or service, one of the things I, and I, I say all this like a question, I need to do pretty early on is, is analyze the ecosystem. Who are all the players that come together to produce this kind of a, you know, what, what, um, what Joe Pine, the author of Experience Economy might call a, a, a consumer outcome. Yes. So who are all the players in the ecosystem that need to come together to produce that outcome? And rather than just asking, how do I make money off that consumer? I ask the question, how do I add value digitally across the ecosystem? Absolutely. And I know that sounds like jargon, but it's actually a very real thing you're talking no, about. It's very real. And, and in doing that, you know, what you're thinking about is, is technology and business and strategy all at the same time. And you are, if you're clever, you're doing that with a design for scale and sustainability 
where you're combining the technical and business architecture to scale up across that ecosystem at the same time that you are defining that value prop. I think that's really fundamental in digital systems because so many people build technical and architect uh, architectures that kind of mess up, right? They they get a minimal viable product to market and they realize they need to re-architect by the time they go from whatever 100 to 10,000 users or whatever their scale challenge is because from day 1 they they weren't necessarily thinking about how to take advantage of you know, all the great stuff. And that that great stuff today is typically cloud, right? So there's Amazon Web Services, AWS, Google Cloud Platform, GCP, Azure. Almost all these startups are, and big companies, are doing these multi-tenant cloud-based infrastructures because they want high availability and they want lower data center costs and they want fewer environmental impacts and to be green. But they aren't necessarily thinking about, you know, like Wayne Gretzky skate to where the puck is going, they're not necessarily thinking about the target state of how to build their business and technical architectures in the context of that value prop that you just described. Mm -hmm. And I, I have learned that that's really fundamental if you're going to scale quickly, right? So you're, you're building system um, quickly because whether it's a, a company that's an in, in, in internal initiative or an, uh, a startup that's a, a standalone thing, you know, you're trying to get something to prove viability and scale as quickly as you can. Um, and a lot of times people do that and they don't necessarily think about the end game of the ecosystem that they're trying to play in. Right. What I'm arguing for is think of that on day one so that your initial minimal viable product has already considered the ecosystem, uh, the ecosystem, and how you're going to scale. You don't have to have it all turned on, you know. Like maybe, you, maybe you only have two AWS instances, but you've built the thing to scale to be 200 AWS instances if you need it. Well, and isn't this um, maybe a, you'll tell me? But some of the genius of what uh, you and the whole outfit at Visa did, right? Because if I look at Visa as a layman. Uh, Visa is a digital transaction processing network that's a data, and by definition, is a data first company. That's right. And by building that network that is essentially the principal infrastructure for an entire payments uh, ecosystem, if you'll allow me that level of jargon, yep. when new shit shows up, you, like I'll, I'll ask you, like Apple Pay seems to be getting some traction now. Yep, yep. that's right. Is Apple Pay, if I'm Visa, is Apple Pay a node on my network or part of my ecosystem? Or how does, so this new front-end payment capability shows up and I'm Visa, yeah. given that I've built this infrastructure uh, network that is my flywheel, when a new thing shows, a new innovation yeah. shows up, I'm I'm better able to incorporate that thing, am I not? Yes, you are. And so let's um, let's do a quick history lesson on, on uh, the evolution of the payment system, right? You started with, like Bank America has Bank America card. And so now that becomes Visa, right? So they create the association, which is kind of like a, a franchise almost. Visa, Visa is essentially a, a conglomerate of banks that yeah. come together to build an it infrastructure. Was bank owned, but now it's, now it's, it's independent. IPO'd and, and so it's an independent separate company. But in the beginning, it was sort of, I don't know, a consortium. Is yeah. that how I should yeah. think of it? Yeah, um, exactly. And 
So what would happen is they'd issue these cards and, and a merchant, if they wanted to check a balance, would call in. There'd be a call center literally with people with books. And they, you know, they'd flip to the page of the book and this the card number corresponds to the person. And the Does creditors. Ben have money? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then they realized, hey, we could put this mag stripe on the back and take the 16-digit account number and, you know, through the mag stripe technology, have a point of sale system that goes from the merchant to what's called an acquiring bank to the network down to the issuer and check the balance, right, for credit. And then later debit came. And so they automated that with MagStripe. Mm -hmm. So MagStripe then became chip. Yeah. So chip is the little thing on your card that is basically a computer. That can, It's basically a computer. Yeah, the little chip on the card can, can generate an algorithm. Wow. And then they added chip plus pin. Yeah. Right, so that you had security. So you have something you have plus something you know. Mm -hmm. That reduced fraud. Somebody lost their card. Mm -hmm. Then they basically took that chip and pin algorithm and they put it into a digital wallet. So Apple Pay or Google Pay or whatever is essentially the same thing as the chip and the pin on your card. Got it. It's just coming from a different device via typically a transaction automated with um, NFC. Near field communication. Near field communication. Yeah, NFC. That's like when you tap and pay. Mm -hmm. So instead of put your chip in for contact, yeah, the same smarts effectively come through the phone, acting as the computer instead of the chip, into the terminal, and it does the same auth stream. So from a merchant or an issuing point of view, something like Apple Pay basically looks the same. It's just instead of the sixteen-digit number that's on your card. It's a chip that is generating a number that has a different um, encryption every time so that if a bad guy is listening and he captures 500 transactions from your phone, mm -hmm. they're all different. So he can't know what your original card number is. Right. So what that meant was um, these network companies created something called a token service provider. And the, the TSP or token service provider knows how to have a vault, a very mm -hmm. secure, secret thing, to map the 16 digits on your credit card to the 16-digit token number used for that security to generate a unique transaction every time from your phone. Yeah. Right? So when digital wallets like Apple Pay to answer your question came out, um, the players across that ecosystem needed to be able to migrate to process that different kind of token instead of the PAN or primary account number in the 16 digits that were in the MagStripe or in the chip. And in doing that, that generated boatloads of new value-added service aspirations, right? So technology became an innovation for new value-added services around the data associated with this. Yes. Right? And so now the phone manufacturers are realizing that they can offer new products and services that are different than what the bank offers. Yeah. Right. So the wallet providers can offer now value added services around loyalty or like if you're Apple and you, you know, you say, hey, well, why not an Apple card? Right. Right. So which now they now have, which of course. They now have, right. So they've become in partnership with a bank kind of an issuer. Yeah. They weren't before. Right. So. And so is the aha here, does a digital business equal a ecosystem network 
that is creating or throwing off data and that adds value to every player in the ecosystem in a way that allows us to monetize data in new and different ways and therefore create a new value that wasn't there before. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. I mean, not everybody is going to um, be that broad reaching. Uh, in other words, there's probably some subset of digital businesses that are not so far reaching and ex ex exponentially touching all the different players in the ecosystem. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think they'll probably follow a lot of the same tenets where they're designing with the user, they're understanding where they fit. Maybe they're just a tiny little slice in the ecosystem, uh, just a little crack, right? Like you, you, you think about that giant payments processing thing, and there are companies that make pieces of technology that are just for a little vertical sliver of the whole thing. And yeah. they, they just invent a thing that works really well and that's their digital business. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I think, um, they all probably follow the similar tenants around how to use open standards or reuse and improvement to create the release train and bundling them into MVP and using customer advisory committees. And they're all addressing security. They're all addressing privacy because you have to, you know, with uh, with digital these days, it's really important. Um, and they're probably, you know, facing the same leadership themes and the same best practices organizationally because kind of doesn't matter if it's a thing that's technology wide it's um the, the truth is digital transformation isn't necessarily about technology right because there's the it's humans yeah <laughs> and so yeah. the so the common leadership um or organizational themes i think are um are you know in my experience um there's a lot of common tricks and traps like people you know somebody will come with a digital business and they won't really have thought strategy structure then people in in order of implementation they will say i have three people what's the right strategy mm -hmm. <laughs> they, you know they like what is like to your point about category before brand yeah right? and you know what is the thing that is the business strategy? Then what is the structure that best executes on that? And then what people do I need to fill that strategy? And, you know, if it's a startup, they want to be as small as possible to kind of de-risk the tech as fast as possible and then spell out the org chart before hiring more people, right? And yeah. that idea is true in startups. It's true in big firms, right? I've, I've created teams from zero to 30, you know, I don't know, dozen times. And in doing that, I find role clarity is actually the most important thing for fast growth. Hmm. In other words, um, sitting down and drawing out the org chart to execute on the strategy yeah. and having what I call a racy chart, you know, that's a best practice for responsible, accountable, coordinated, and informed where you, you know, you, you create a chart of people in rows and you have tasks in, in uh, rows and then you have columns of people. If you can't put an A at mm. the intersection of a person and a task, you have a problem because you, you can you can have lots of people responsible, but only one accountable. Right? That, that's the one throat thing. to choke. One throat to choke is very important when it comes to fast growth. Right. So if if you're a digital business that is trying to expedite, bring um, speed to a product to market. You're going to want to know if you're three people now and you're going to grow to 30 in whatever, 12 months. You're going to want to draw the org chart and draw the racy chart and understand the roles and responsibilities before you go hire those people. 
Mm. If you take the time to do that, you will fill those open spots with the right people to execute on your strategy. It sounds a lot like uh, that old mantra of uh, measure twice, cut once. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Or, you know, Stephen Covey's begin with the end in mind. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's highly effective and it it helps. I've seen it um, expedite uh, focus and help teams execute on time and on budget with clear scope and clear uh, direction. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's a good catalyst. Now the other uh, sort of big mindset change, I think, and I want to bounce this off you. I think for the most part, for the history of the IT industry, data, and this is an oversimplification, but data has been a record of what happened. And we use that record for historical analysis. We use that record for accounting, uh, et cetera. And now today we look at historical analysis and then we try to do some predictive shit going forward and maybe we're adding some machine learning and so forth. But, but there is a undeclared, undiscussed definition or context or mindset, however you want to think about it, that data equals a record of what happened. And what we're going to do is, is, is analyze that data, act on that data, monetize that data, study trends so that we can quote unquote, make better decisions. I think that's all true and fine, but the big aha for me is um, a true digital business has made the shift from data being something that is an analysis of what happened to being the in the moment thing that triggers shit to happen. Yes. So data goes from a record of what happened to being the thing that makes things happen. Yes. And Visa is an example. You, you guys were one of the early at scale beyond comprehension to become a, you're not just, analyzing historical shit you're literally saying will we or won't we enable a transaction yeah so you're using historical data that is to right. say do i have credit am i trustworthy as a, as a yep. consumer yep. is this is this is this retailer real is it da, da, da. you know yep. there's a lot of things you're checking that are historical but you're doing that in a real-time way to enable a transaction or not in the moment. So you're making things happen with data. That's right. And so how do I think about my digital business? If I want to be a make shit happen with data company versus just an analyze shit that happened in the past company. Yeah. I think it's really important that people understand their goals and they, they understand the sequence of, um, you know, the product release train in construct of those goals, you know, part I think a lot of folks don't sit down and group up product features and figure out how to bundle them into a series of minimal viable product releases such that they keep kind of reusing and improving on components from an initial release in a release train that is, you know, done in concert with their customers and allows them to have the fundamentals of what the service needs to do for a scope that can be achieved, uh, that stands up the service that is then used to answer the question you have. And this is why I think, you know, I, I did some research and an HBR survey showed that um, uh, digital transformation or creation risk is the number one concern for most CEOs and senior executives in 2019. Wow. And yet 70% 
70% of digital transformation initiatives do not reach their goals. So, for example, in 2019, $1.3 trillion was spent last year, and $900 billion was wasted. $900 billion out of $1.3 trillion, right? Now, why is that, right? Because it's not about the tech, right? It's because people don't understand that it's like building a house. You got to have a foundation before you put up the walls, before you put on the roof, before you add the plumbing and try and close it up before the weather gets there to then, you know, put in the appliances, <laughs> right? You got to frame the house before you can put on the sheetrock. <laughs> exactly. And the, the mistake I think a lot of people make in trying to answer the question that you just asked is that they jump to the notion of data as like sheetrock before they have the framing. And they haven't thought about the sort of release train notion of the strategy that is from the day one combined technical and business architecture to allow you to scale up to then have the data that produces the thing that it is you're trying to get to market with about the data, right? I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so if people flip their mindset, maybe um, in the coming coming years, we'll see a lot less uh, destroyed investment in digital business as they kind of... Um, get their head screwed on right about this. <laughs> yeah, that's my point about having a principled belief system for what it takes to create the digital business, right? If you if you have tenants that you're following from a principled base, um, they're very powerful when you align a group of people around a big investment. You know, if you get whatever, 10 or $100 million to go build a thing, or more than that, if it's a big thing, billion dollars sometimes some of these things are right? yeah giant investments some of this stuff um you really need to have a game plan around how all of that stuff works and if if the goal is data driven and and the goal is it has a flywheel around all that from day one um you know i think it's really important that management um understand how to how to have the delivery of that and the focus of that because it's really easy to get bright object distraction around real-time data offering that you're talking about as a value prop before you have the fundamentals necessary to create that data you know unless you already have some big infrastructure that you're now just generating this new data as a service from right yeah. I and mean, if all that's already been paid for and invested and now you're your job is to innovate on that with the data that spins out of that flywheel mm -hmm. as a legacy. You know, that's a different story. But most companies that are starting up or building a new thing don't necessarily have that, right? They're right. They're to answer your question, they're they're building the thing at the same time that they're trying to get the data out of, right? Yeah. Um, or they're partnering with other people that have things that they need to integrate to and modify and build new processes from, you know, healthcare or medical, whatever those examples. Um you know, so it's important that they they do all that with um, strategy, business, and technology all outlined as kind of major program initiatives. And I think that's true if it's a big company or a small company. It doesn't really matter if you you have you have to be thinking holistically about that stuff, looking at all those moving parts, and then clarifying your digital business intentions up front to avoid, you know, failure, to avoid lack of accountability, um, 
you know, you're going to have challenges, right? You're, you're going to have problems making delivery in the real world um, of execution <laughs> and what reality is for the byproduct of the initiative. You're going to have challenges matching whatever was in the business case with right. that, right? It's uh, A to B is not an easy path, right? And you're going to have mal- management challenges. You're going to have um, opportunities for people to to give great feedback and step up, right? And, you know, that's, to me, the leadership best practice there is a group of people who recognize that up front and they have the right way to to manage the staff and the right way to lead um, with the right change management put in place, particularly if it's a big company that is putting something new in, they, they have to have, um, they have to have feedback mechanisms. You know, one, <clears throat> one thing I learned from uh, a great uncle of mine, um, we were talking about giving hard feedback to somebody and he said three words, think intention, impact, outcome. If you're going to give somebody hard feedback, what is your intention? Know that your words are going to have an impact. And what is your desired outcome? You know, just a little wise phrase, intention, impact, outcome. When you have challenges with the team, when you're trying to execute on that stuff, ask yourself, what is it that you're, what you're going to say? You know, words are going to be hard. What's your desired outcome at the end, right? If we, if you're spending time thinking about digital transformation in those kind of leadership best practices, I think you're going to have a heck of a lot more fun ensuring that you have a desired outcome, meet the accountability and the intention uh, in your delivery. Incredibly well said. You should think about a career in this field, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else, Big Ben, you want to touch on? You know, it's really fun doing this work. And I encourage teams to have fun, right? Building these awesome digital businesses is, I think, one of the greatest opportunities that we have is certainly where we are with society right now. You know, think think about this principle-based approach. Think about enjoying the journey. Um, And, you know, if I can be of any help, I hope people will will reach out and and talk to me about it because I'd love – I love this work. I love talking with people about it. I find it really exciting. And um, seeing the innovation, seeing the invention, um, helping teams create uh, new digital businesses, you know, it's really fun work. And uh, I'm really uh, appreciative to be here today. Thanks a lot for uh, for the opportunity to talk with you a little more. And uh, that's it, I think. Awesome. Well, you know, I love you. I'd love to have you back. This is a big topic, one I care a lot about. So I hope we can continue the dialogue over time. And I, you know, one of the things I love about, well, I love a lot of shit about you, but one of the things I love about you from a work perspective is you've done this equally pretty much in really the largest, most sophisticated network digital ecosystems on the planet, Visa and Chase being, you know, primary examples. And yet you're doing a lot of work these days with startups as well, right? And so yeah. that that view that you have of how to do this from literally the biggest to the big to the smallest to the small is a fascinating one. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I think a lot of the issues are the same in firms big and small. It's just about understanding scale and speed to market and how you're trying to, whether it's entrepreneurial or entrepreneurial, address these kind of principles about building your digital business. And, you know, they all have to worry about the same kind of stuff, right? Like startups 
can't forget compliance. Mm. <laughs> you know, you get there's always that. <laughs> you get whacked with compliance in the big company, right? Because there's reams of people that deal with it. But you've got to figure out how to build modifiable frameworks that can evolve in a startup, right? Document the process in a system that can grow with your new digital business, but it's still a compliance issue you got to deal with. You know, well, to your point, we just, if I understand right, um, uh, Gavin Newsom just introduced new laws in California around uh, how companies are allowed to monetize data and not monetize data. That's right. And I forget what the number is, but if you're above a certain size company, which is not that huge, and you have one customer in California, that's right. You now have to deal with that law, yeah, right? It's even bigger in outside of the U.S. You with know? GDPR and things yeah, along exactly, those lines. Exactly. Like, uh, you know, uh, I was in fintech for a long time, and you know, PCI compliance, personal consumer information, was always um, a concern. GDPR is like that on steroids, right? I mean, right, of course, there's HIPAA and yeah. the equivalent of that in other exactly. countries, and and and, right? Right. So, you know, understanding what those um, data compliance regulations are is probably just as important as understanding the players in the ecosystem. If your objective is data as uh, you know, using data driven um, tenants for your um, new digital business, you know, th those compliance issues are. Uh, not to be trifled with, and you want to, you want a subject matter expert. Um, if you're going to do a healthcare system, you probably want a couple days deep dive with somebody who's been doing it for 20 years and kind of knows what is legal and what's not legal, mm -hmm. and they're helping you think about your data product and whether things you're moving or asking or doing are legal or not legal and how that is expected to change with policy enforcement yep. coming down the pike. And, yep. You know, you, you really do want to spend the time to um, really map all that out so that you're not, uh, what's the phrase hoisted on your own petard. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe on that note, <laughs> thank you, big Ben Ruiz. All right. Have a great day. You too. Well, there he is the legendary big Ben Ruiz. I sure hope you love this episode. And uh, don't forget our next episode in our two-part series on digital business with my buddy, entrepreneur and CEO of Noodle.ai, Steve Pratt. And don't forget to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player because after Steve, we have a special two-part series with the real DEA narcos, uh, Javier Pena and Steve Murphy themselves. And I'm telling you, look, at the risk of sounding immodest, um, those two episodes with the real DEA narcos are as good as it gets when it comes to podcasting. <laughs> All right. We would like to thank the legendary Big Ben Ruiz. Check him out at benruiz.com. -E the good folks at onelifefullylive.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check him out. Growwire.com. It's what growth-oriented entrepreneurial folks are reading on the internet. Check him out. Growwire.com. Bottleneck Virtual Assistance. Is it time to scale the power of you with the power of a virtual assistant? Why not check them out today at bottleneck.online. And are you in Silicon Valley? Are you in the B2B space? If you are, then you know that your website is often the first thing that people experience when they're interested in your company. And my friends at Otranet have been, have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for 25 years. Check them out at atre.net. That's atre.net today. And let's not forget the amazing people 
at Save the Waves. This is an extraordinary op, uh, organization mobilizing surfers to make a difference with our oceans. Check out savethewaves.org. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead. Lockhead? Lockhead? What? what I get, you know, if you're going to have a podcast or an oddcast, you should probably learn how to say your own last name. <laughs> anyway, listen, we'd love it if you shared the shit out of it. Um, if you like this stuff, um, make no mistake, we did our first um, listener survey this past summer, and approximately 80% of the people who found us found out about us because a friend shared this oddcast with them. So thank you so much for your shares. We must warn you that clearly this oddcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts. I also want to thank my dear friend Bob Evans for having me regularly on his awesome podcast, Cloud Wars Live. Check it out. Cloud Wars Live with Bob Evans. Don't forget to teach technology. Go for a long walk in the woods. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Listen to Katie Lang. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Greg Clark of Crosspoint Capital Partners. Sorry, Greg. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. It means the world to me that you would invest part of your life with us. Stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.